Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. So back in 2001, when I was applying to seminaries, the only places that I was really looking at were schools that had really big recognizable names. So I looked at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Duke. Now, each of these schools, with the exception of Duke, the first three, they were founded originally with the intention of training pastors. And many people don't realize that it was only much later on in their histories as academic institutions that they began teaching subjects other than theology. In each of these schools, it was associated with a particular denomination. So Harvard was Unitarian. I know that's a big shocker. Harvard would be Unitarian. Uh, Yale was Episcopalian. Princeton was Presbyterian. And Duke was Methodist. Now, I ended up applying to Harvard, Princeton, and Duke. And I ended up going to Princeton because I believe that Princeton, with its Presbyterian roots, would do the best to help prepare me for my life as a Presbyterian pastor. Unfortunately, this was not the case. What I came to find, much after my time at Princeton, was that even though what I experienced at Princeton was intellectually very interesting, it didn't exactly get me ready for the day-to-day life of being a pastor. For instance, There are no perfect words that you can say to someone who is experiencing loss. No matter how many case studies you read, at the end of the day, everybody deals with death in a different way. There are no magic words that can simply make it all better. Another example might be of examining successful churches. Even though you spend many hours looking at how they grow, the programs they use, the advertising that they implement to draw new members, none of that really matters if you think the church is all about you. No one can teach you that being a good pastor is all about realizing that you matter a lot less than the people who you serve. Humility cannot be taught in a classroom. You can only make that and understand it by making lots and lots and lots of mistakes. And trust me on that, I've made a number of them myself. What I've come to learn over time is that you all have a lot more to teach me about what it means to be a pastor than any classroom ever could. And I think this is something that Jesus appreciated. I've told you all in the past that Jesus was a man who was not educated. But what he understood very simply was that The people who he spent time with, the people who he ministered to, these people were people who could teach him a great deal about life and about what it meant to show God's love in the world. Today we read a scripture passage where Jesus, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. Now it was not a sea, we just need to be very clear about that, it was a lake and they just called it a sea because it was a really big lake, but he's walking along the sea, he comes across four fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And he says, I want you to drop your nets and follow me. In essence, what Jesus is saying, I want you to quit your job 
and follow me around Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but if some guy came up to me today and said, Alex, I want you to quit your job so that you can follow me around for the next three years, I would say, heck no. Unless you plan to pay my mortgage and feed my family, I think I'll stay right where I am. But that's not what these men did. When these men got the offer, they said, sure, we would love to follow you around. Now you might think, well, these guys didn't have a whole lot going on, right? But make no mistake about it, these men had families. They probably even had children. So by quitting their jobs to follow Jesus, they would be abandoning a lot of that responsibility. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is, why were they willing to do this? Why were they willing to abandon all of that responsibility? Well, you have to ask yourself, what would it take for you to abandon all of that responsibility? Well, I would think that either you're going to go through some type of midlife crisis, that's one possibility, or possibly you could end up thinking that things are going to change, that there's an event that's about to happen, something major. And if you think that an event's about to happen, then probably what you're going to say is it's probably more important to prepare for this event than to continue doing what I have always done. Would you agree that probably would be what it would take for you to change? So the question we have to ask is, what did they think was about to happen? Well, last week we talked about Jesus' pitch. And I'm sure you all have that memorized. What was Jesus' pitch? Do you remember? Come on, give it back to me. You all got it. What was it? Something about time and the kingdom and repenting and something like that, right? That was what it was all about. Okay, where's it go? It goes, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now we can assume that those are the words that Jesus used to recruit these four fishermen. Now the important part of that, the part that you really need to draw out of there is, and the kingdom of God has come near. So these guys probably thought, you know what? The kingdom of God, it's about to arrive. And so therefore it's worth it to quit my job because I need to prepare for God's kingdom. Now does that sound crazy to you? It sounds crazy to me. But at the time, it made total sense. Let me explain to you what was happening. And you really got to follow me on this because this sets the stage for everything we're going to be talking about down the line. So at the time that these men were being recruited by Jesus, everybody they knew was struggling to survive. And the reason why they were struggling so much had to do with two cities that had popped up in recent decades in the area of Galilee. Now, if I had monitors on the wall, I would show you where those are. So, but I can't show you, so you just need to use your imagination. Just imagine Galilee, right? Because you all know what that looks like. In your mind, and you're going to imagine two cities. They're like here and here. One of the cities, Tiberias, was on the Sea of Galilee. And the other was off to the side, Sephorus which is right near Nazareth. Now these two cities were primarily comprised of wealthy people. They had these huge, massive populations. And when you have lots of people, what do you need to do? Well, you need to be able to feed those people, right? So the way that you feed them is, you go out to the rural areas and you ramp up the food production. That's kind of like here in Chicago. How many people here in Chicago grow all the food that they eat? 
All right, nobody, right? We go to a grocery store. We depend on the rest of Illinois and Indiana to provide us with food. But not only that, we expect them to provide us with food at a reasonable cost. Now, the way that this works is that our government provides subsidies to the farmers, right? They give them actual money to say, will you bring your food to market for less than it's worth? That's how we keep food prices low. But back in Jesus' day, those subsidies, they didn't exist. The Roman government wasn't exactly handing out money to farmers. But yet, these two cities had said, we're only going to buy your food for a certain price. And so what happened was, only the large landowners could afford to stay in business. Because they had to bring large volumes of crops to market. That's how they would make their money. Small landowners. Let's say you all were a bunch of small landowners. You would bring your crop in, you would take it to market, but you would have to sell it at a higher price because you don't have as much, right? Well, what that means is your crop didn't sell. So you had to bring your price down. And what happened was these small farms would go further and further into debt until eventually they got bought up by the large landowners. Then what would happen is they would keep you on the land and use you as indentured servants. They would pay you little or nothing and you got to keep only the best, or you got to keep only the worst, excuse me, the best went to the large landowner, but you got to keep only the worst of the crop that was harvested. Do you understand what's happening? So only because of these two cities, we're in this situation where a few people became enormously profitable while the rest of the population descended into poverty. Now, these four fishermen who were Jews living in this little town of Capernaum, which, by the way, was a fishing village. These four guys, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they were subject to the same market forces. Only the big fishing outfits were able to survive because they could bring large volumes of fish to market. Small mom-and-pop shops, like the ones these guys belonged to, which had been around for centuries and had done fine, all of a sudden, they couldn't compete anymore. They had one or two boats, and they couldn't catch nearly as many fish as the other guys. And so, as a result, they started to descend into poverty. So it makes sense that these young guys, having seen their entire community fall prey to these wealthy cities, would be willing to quit their jobs and follow Jesus. I mean, can you imagine being in their position? You would do the same thing because you would think to yourself, you know what, it's probably worth it for me to follow him. My, that's going to lead me to a better life than simply doing what I've always done. Now that tells us why they were willing to say yes to Jesus. So we're on the same page on that one. You gotta give me something. Boy, what is up this morning? My goodness. Woo. First service, 8.30 in the morning. Everybody was really with it. Second service, it was like dead. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. People weren't giving me anything. Just like, ugh. I mean, there are literally people who were dead. I mean, one guy was like in rim sleep while I was preaching. <laughs> He's like twitching and stuff. So anyways, you with me on this? Come on, follow along with me. Good grief. I can't do this all by myself. Okay, so I know it's not that boring. All right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> okay, so this you can understand why they said yes. yes. The question now that we have to turn to is, 
Why did Jesus choose these people? Why did he choose these guys, these four people? I mean, to me, that's a really interesting question. He could have chosen a lot of different people, but he chose these four guys. Now, obviously, the answer to that could be that these guys were just, you know, some down-on-their-luck fishermen who were sympathetic to Jesus' cause. But I think the answer is a little more complicated than that. And I want to tell you a little story from a man named Bunker Roy to explain what I mean by this. So Bunker Roy, he was an Indian man, and he was born into the highest caste of Indian society. He went to the best schools. He had the best teachers. And he had the best jobs at his fingertips. He could have done anything he wanted. He could have been a lawyer, a doctor, a diplomat, whatever. But before he went on with his education, he decided that he wanted to spend some time working in rural Indian villages. He just wanted to see what it was like. How do these people live? And what he witnessed there was so astounding to him that it changed his life forever. He saw disease, poverty, people starving to death. He saw people literally dying in front of him all over the place. And so he decided, you know what? This is wrong, and something needs to be done about this. So he decided he was going to take five years off from school, and he was going to go into these rural villages and help them dig wells. And as you know, even to this day, many people in those parts of the world that don't have access to fresh water, that's a big reason why they end up sick. So he's helping them dig these wells, and as he gets to know these people, these villagers, what happens is he realizes these people have skills and knowledge that are actually really, really useful, even though none of these people have ever been educated. And what he came to realize was that these people, they needed to teach this knowledge to others, not to the wealthy, but to the poor. And so Bunker helped to establish what became known as the first barefoot college in India. A barefoot college is a college for the poor and run by the poor. What the poor think is important, it's going to be reflected in the school. Nobody with a master's or PhD is allowed to be there. It was an amazing experiment because for the first time, men and women were allowed to learn together. They built the school by hand in 1986. Twelve architects who cannot read or write designed the school. They won what was known as the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. It's an award given out in India, and it comes with a $50,000 prize. And they ended up giving it back because the committee questioned whether they could have built a structure so well without the help of professionally trained architects. The women at the college, who Bunker will tell you are the smartest, hardest working people there, they waterproofed the roof of the college with their own concoction of jaggery, which is a form of sugar cane, urine, and a bunch of other things. In 35 years, that roof has never leaked once. Can you say that of any roof here in America? <laughs> the entire school is powered by solar power. And underneath of the school is these large rain collection tanks. If they were to go through a drought, 
they would have enough water to last them for four years. The women, they fabricated these massive solar cookers. Now this is not a solar panel that powers an oven. These are actual solar reflective panels that can cook meals up to 60 at one time. Again, this is something that was designed by people who cannot read or write. And the list goes on as to what these people can do. Medicine, dentistry, engineering, agriculture. It is amazing to realize what people with no formal training are capable of doing. You see, the problem with education is that it boxes you in to a certain way of thinking. In America, we are always telling our children that education opens the doors to a better future, which is true. But we often neglect to talk about how education can limit us. The problem with education is that you learn how to think like the person before you. And so you go to school and you end up with a certain foundation. And that foundation is supposed to give you a baseline so that you can go out, you can go to college, and then you can begin specializing in whatever field you end up going into. But what if that foundation actually limits your ability to be innovative? What if your education ends up confining you because you are unable to think outside of it. In earlier services, I brought three people up and asked them questions. Three people, one was very young, usually in grade school, one was kind of middle-aged, and another was older. And I asked them a question. If you could invent anything, what would you invent? What would you come up with? And the person who came up with the most out-of-the-box wild idea was the younger person, the person who was the smallest. Why? Because that person hasn't been influenced yet to, by education. They're not required to think within a certain box, and so it's all out there. But as she gets older, what's going to happen? That creativity is going to get stifled by the very education that is so important to her and to her future. People who are at the Barefoot College, the reason why they are able to do these amazing things is because they've never been taught how to think. They have no education to guide them. And so when they're approaching problems, they have to do it from a totally unique perspective. If you went to a roofer here in America and you said to a roofer, hey, you know what I want you to do? I want you to waterproof my roof with sugar and urine. They would think you're crazy, right? Because that's not how you waterproof a roof. How do you waterproof a roof? You go to Home Depot, you buy some caulk, and you caulk the roof. And then what happens? In 10 to 15 years, it gives out, and you've got to do it all over again. Bunker understood that people with no education are able to do amazing things because they can think outside the box in ways that you and I cannot. And this is why I believe Jesus chose the disciples that he did. When we hire people to run our churches, particularly churches like this, who do we want? We want the person with the most education, the best reputation, and the person who has the greatest accomplishments. Why? Because we assume that the person with the most education is going to produce the best results. But Jesus teaches us that when you choose ordinary average people, that is not always true. 
What Jesus shows up with the disciples that he chose is that sometimes you need ordinary, average people who can approach problems from a completely different perspective than people with training. I mean, if we jumped in a time machine and we went back in time and we could look at Jesus when he was recruiting these disciples, I don't think anybody in their right mind would have said, yeah, that's going to work out well. No. The idea that some down-on-their-luck, uneducated fishermen could turn Jesus' movement into one of the largest religions in the world seems highly unlikely. But let's say Jesus had chosen some well-educated scholarly Jews to be his disciples. Do you think things would have worked out nearly as well? Of course not. Because Christianity is a movement for the uneducated. It's a movement for the downtrodden. It's a movement for those who have lost everything. You don't want people who are educated and well-off to lead a movement like that. You need people who are at the bottom to lead people who are at the bottom. Now eventually, people like me, educated people, we took over the church. And we've been running the church for a long time now. But as you probably can tell, the church is in a state of decline. The entire purpose of me preaching to you today, the entire purpose of me telling you all about this, is for you to understand that it is not people like me, people with theological degrees, who are going to save this church. This church is going to survive through out-of-the-box thinking, barefoot thinking. That means listening to people who we wouldn't normally listen to. That means trying ideas that we wouldn't normally try. That means doing things like different kinds of worship services. I know, I know, the heart attack, it's about to happen, right? <laughs> that means trying different types of sermons, different types of music, different types of things that will allow people to see the church through fresh eyes. If you are sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, Alex, I don't really know that much about Jesus or God. I just come to church because I think it's important, but I don't really have that much to offer the church. Then you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. It is to the person who says, who am I, that Jesus says, you are the person who is going to change the future of this church as we know it. From where you sit, you can come up with that unique perspective, those ideas that no one else has ever had. From where you sit, there is a whole world of possibility that no one has ever thought of before. And it is to you that Jesus says, drop your nets and follow me. I hope you will heed that call. Because your idea could be the idea that sparks a whole movement in our church that allows us to thrive once again. Listen to Jesus. He is calling out to you because you are the one that can make it change. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.